welcome to the Plastic Surgery Practice Podcast on the MedCorp Podcast Network. I am Carrie Stevens, the co-chief editor of Plastic Surgery Practice. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of the podcast and regular guest, Dr. Alex Zerarian. Dr. Zerarian is the founder of Zuri Plastic Surgery in Miami, where he specializes in aesthetic procedures of the face and body, including facelift, eyelid, eyelid surgery, breast augmentation and reduction, abdominoplasty, liposuction, the Brazilian butt lift, and rhinoplasty. It is the latter topic, rhinoplasty, what, um, is what he's going to be talking to us about today. So Dr. Z, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Carrie. Always great to uh, be on the podcast. Thank you so much. We, we love having you. Um, to start, what are the most popular trends in rhinoplasty right now? And how has this so-called Zoom boom impacted rhinoplasty in any way? Yeah, the, uh, the, the Zoom era has really changed the game. I think so many people are now working from home. They're really involved in these meetings um, where they're, they're actually looking at themselves, I think, more than, more than the person that they're talking to. A lot of times when they're on these Zoom meetings, you can't help but just see all of these little details when the, uh, when the screen is on, is on you the whole time, uh, which doesn't really happen in normal conversation. You know, if you're just talking to somebody at the office or, you know, in the street, you're not really looking at yourself as you make all your facial expressions. So it's, it's really brought about a lot more people looking for rhinoplasty surgery, uh, looking to correct nasal deformities, nasal shapes, you know, saddle, you know, humps, you know, on their noses and the tips. And, you know, so it, it just brings a lot of, 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 I think, a lot of insecurity in a lot of people. So how has rhinoplasty evolved over the years in terms of surgical, te surgical techniques and outcomes? Well, it's, it's progressed dramatically uh, over the last, I would say, 30 to 40 years. Um, you know, the technologies have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, examples of right now, technologies that I use are, uh, for example, something called ultrasonic uh, rhinoplasty, which um, is, is out of Italy, uh, an amazing uh, piece of technology that allows us to shave the bone down in a very, very delicate process uh, to get very, very, um, you know, uh, detailed results. You know, before it was much more of a chisel and a, and a hammer type situation where we would, you know, you know, basically be molding the, uh, the nasal bones, but we've come a long way with ultrasonic rhinoplasty. You know, we've come a long way with really understanding the nose, the architecture, the cartilage, you know, how it reacts over time, um, you know, different modalities on, you know, how to, um, you know, use actually non-biologic tissue to uh, basically reinforce the, the nasal dorsum. So there's, there's a lot of things that have come around technology-wise for rhinoplasty that, um, you know, have really, really changed the game. Also, the lighting that we're using now, being able to use much better lighting inside the nose, fiber optic lights, uh, better headlights, um, you know, retractors. So e everything just evolves, you know, more and more over time. So let's get into the technology now. How has the use of technology, um, such as 3D imaging and computer-assisted surgery, impacted the field of rhinoplasty? Yeah, so uh, computer uh, 3D imaging has come around in plastic surgery for not just rhinoplasty. It came around for other body parts. One of the other most common body parts was to use it for breast augmentation. Uh, they would basically use the similar technology uh, to try to reproduce what the results were going to look like. Uh, with noses, it's it's the same idea. Um, you know, you're basically scanning the nose, scanning the facial architecture, 
using a you know software program that then generates the image and then allows the the plastic surgeon to basically tweak the image in a way in which they would um, you know work on the nose and and kind of you know what they would expect the nose to look like after they had um, you know operated on the nose you know a lot of lawsuits unfortunately came from those 3d imaging devices not only in breast surgery but also in rhinoplasty and the rhinoplasty patient population is a very very delicate patient population uh, of all of the patients seeking plastic surgery rhinoplasty patients are the ones that tend to exhibit the highest levels of anxiety and depression and body dysmorphism and thinking that their nose is you know looking a certain way but it's it's really not for the rest of the people around them um, so it's a very delicate surgery and you know 3d imaging uh, although can be helpful uh, I would say that for the most part it's not something that I employ in my particular practice because I can I, I it can get you into a lot of trouble when for whatever reason the result is not exactly the same as your 3d image that you showed the patient and then you can get into some some big trouble and, and you know just remember like every conversation that we have on the podcast about every other type of plastic surgery that we perform uh the human body has its own way of recovering of adapting of changing of responding to the trauma of surgery and inflammation and, and so to guarantee somebody that they're going to look just like a 3D computer generated image, I, 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 have, I have my concerns about that. And so um, I choose not to, to dive into that world. No, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned the body dysmorphia aspect. Are there any population that is not good for rhinoplasty? I mean, other than, you know, patients exhibiting with body dysmorphia, are there any other patients that you would say, you know, not perform surgery on for rhinoplasty? Yeah, there's actually, there, there's quite a few patients that um, I would tell you actually, Carrie, that in my, in my practice, I, I, um, I deny more rhinoplasties than I perform by a disproportionate. Wow. Yeah, it's one of the surgeries that I, I am most selective on um, when I offer to, to engage um, in, in, in helping somebody, <clears throat> you know, with, with, their, with their concerns. Um, you know, there's an acronym that anybody who's listening to the podcast, any plastic surgeon who listens to us is going to laugh because they're going to remember this from their fellowship, but it's called Simon. And it's basically single, immature male who happens to be overly narcissistic. So those categories uh, of, of patients are always very concerning, um, as are the patients that are doing surgery for reasons outside of, of the norm. For example, you know, you have a TV news anchor uh, who she feels that if she doesn't get a rhinoplasty, she's not going to get a promotion or she's not going to stay on the TV channel as a broadcaster because she's got this, this, this nasal defect. Um, you know, there's other people that come and, and they say that they're perfectly fine with their nose, but their significant other who they're dating, you know, really dislikes their nose 
And so they're coming in because they want to make their significant other happy with the way that they appear. Um, you know, there's, again, there's then the body dysmorphic patient, like we talked about, you know, you're looking at them in the mirror, they feel like they have a hump on their nose and they don't have anything at all. And then there's the patients that are just totally unrealistic that, you know, they say, I want you to shrink my nose. I want you to make my nose physically smaller. Um, yeah, that's not entirely possible. <laughs> um, I can't shrink your nose like I shrink your breasts, right? And I can't make your nose bigger like I make, you know, other body parts like your buttock with a BBL. Um, that's not the way, of, that's not the architecture of the nose. That's not how it works. But again, there's a lot of patients that come in. Um, also, you know, there are there are some surgeons that's, that, that they uh, have a niche with particular types of noses. For example, Middle Eastern nose is very different than a Caucasian nose. There's some, there's some surgeons that really like to dedicate themselves to ethnic noses, which can be African-American noses, um, Asian noses. So every geographic area has a very particular cartilage and bone um, anatomy to the nose. And the nose, honestly, is one of the most complex structures in the human body. And uh, it deserves a lot of respect. And you just don't offer rhinoplasty to anybody. That is really interesting. So, okay, I wanna get into the complications now. So what are the most common complications associated with rhinoplasty and how can they be minimized? Yeah, so the most common complication with rhinoplasty, you know, beyond the initial prolonged swelling that a lot of patients don't really wanna grasp, they think that you have a rhinoplasty and then a week or two weeks later, like that's it, like I have my final result. Right. And and it's actually quite the opposite. It is one of the only surgeries that you'll read in the textbook in uh, that'll tell you that that truly the final result is that one year after surgery, like a full 12 months. Every rhinoplasty textbook will say it. Um, and I'll, and and the problem is that in society, what has happened is that a lot of the surgeons, they do these reveals. So, oh, you know you know, uh, Nancy got her rhinoplasty. She's back on, you know, one week after surgery, we're going to take off the splint and the, you know, and, and then just, you know, look at her, like, look how amazing she looks like a week after surgery. Um, that is not the reality. The reality is that most patients need a lot more time for their swelling to come down. Uh, besides swelling, I mean, complications with rhinoplasty, you know, can be, pretty bad if they are, if it's done in, incorrectly. So one of them is, for example, a saddle deformity. So it's some, some patients who have a very, very, you know, strong hump at the top of their nose. If you start, you know, whittling down and, and either ultrasonic rhinoplasty or chisel or whatever you're going to use, if you're too aggressive with that, you can leave them with a literal saddle hump uh, or saddle uh, indentation rather like a U-shaped deformity uh, in their nose. And it's a huge problem, very difficult to, to fix that kind of issue. Um, other complications can be if you're trying to harvest some septum, some cartilage uh, inside the nose, you know, you can do some internal damage there where things don't heal properly and they end up with a, what they call a, like a whistleblower deformity where every time they speak, the air that's passing through their sinuses crosses through their septum and it makes a whistling sound. Um, 
very odd complication, very, uh, again, another challenging thing to fix. So you don't want to go to rhinoplasty to just anybody. Uh, you have to be very careful. There's also collapse of the tip that can happen if the surgeon is overly aggressive trying to reduce the tip of the nose. Um, you know, some, some ethnic noses have a much wider nostril base. So in attempt to try to make a narrower nostril base, you take off extra tissue from the lateral nostrils. Then you can get notching there. You can get a keloid or a bad scar there. So yeah, it's it's um it's one of the more challenging surgeries. It can be very rewarding as well if you select the right patient and you select the right surgery uh, for that for that particular person. Um, but yeah, it's no joke. It's it's not a not a chip shot. Well, I can't think of a better entry to the next question. And this is actually my final question. So what is your approach to balancing patients' desires for a specific nose shape with their facial features and overall aesthetic goals? Yeah, so we balance that with a very in-depth analysis using uh, an iPad and a, and a large flat screen TV where I sit down with the patient. We look at their photos in depth. We zoom in, we zoom out. We look at every single angle, every single profile. Uh, you know, everything you can imagine. We do an internal nasal exam. We make sure that they don't have a functional respiratory problem that would lead them to have to go see an ear, nose, and throat doctor um, for an evaluation. And you have to separate the functional parts of rhinoplasty from the cosmetic parts of rhinoplasty. But overall, it really comes, comes down to the consultation, to the discussion with the patient, and setting very realistic expectations Again, based a lot of it based on their existing structure, but also on their ethnicity and their and their genetic background, which plays a huge, huge role in their uh, outcome and 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 in their honestly in the way that they're going to look after the surgery. So, you know, you have to sit down and spend a lot of time answering questions and looking at photos because whenever you encounter a patient that is um, you know, seeking a particular nose that is just not going to happen based on their, their existing framework, then you have to be very careful not to offer them surgery or at least to offer them to see one of your colleagues, you know, to get multiple opinions, um, you know, regarding, regarding that particular surgery. So they don't have to take your word for it necessarily as a surgeon. Um, but if they hear the same, the same feedback from two or three uh, board certified surgeons that have good experience, uh, then, you know, they need to be careful what they, what they do. Well, thank you. As always, Dr. Zarian, this was very informative and I know I learned a lot. Um, and to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to the Plastic Surgery Practice Podcast on the Med MedCorp Podcast Network and check out PlasticSurgeryPractice.com to keep up with the latest industry news. Until next time, take care.